Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times. I've got three friends and they all call me Waldy. And one of them shares this platform with me. And when I say one of them, I'm being reductive because this man is like four seasons that make up a year. He's like the 20 football teams that make up the Premier League. He's many things in one exciting package. An art dealer, an art historian, a TV presenter, and, as we found out last week, he's even tried his hand at art restoration with interesting consequences. The world knows him as Bendor Grosvenor, but I'm his friend, so I know him as Bendy. Bendy, how are you? Oh, Baldy, I'm very well indeed. Thank you for another lovely introduction. I was thinking the other day, though, the way to artistically summarise our relationship, and I think I'm the nail to your masterpiece. I am unseen, I am utterly pointless, except every now and then I stop you crashing to the floor. <laughs> Not often enough, I think, Bendy. You need you need to nail me in a bit harder. Um, but you've had an interesting week. I mean, you had all those repercussions about your confessions of a restorer. I mean, that was all fairly active, wasn't it? Yes, I, I seem to have this habit of triggering <laughs> certain sections of the art historical world. Um, this week, it was conservators who um, didn't listen to the podcast. And uh, when we went on places like Twitter and said, uh, I've been doing restoration, it's easy peasy. Um, they thought that I was undermining their, their profession and got very upset. But of course, if you listen to the podcast, we said that people like me can't do it and you have to trust the profession. You were undermining their profession and I can see why, why they did get upset. But it was fantastic. And, you know, um, as you know, Bendy, when it comes to a war, I'm always the man who stands by your side. Free Bendor <laughs> okay. is what I say. Bendor was innocent. Look, we've got a very busy podcast for you today. Uh, the Florentine Renaissance is coming up. And those glorious Islamic craftsmen, the Fatimids, plus the Waldy and Bendy Awards are back as we start our difficult quest to find the worst film about an artist ever made. And believe me, it ain't easy. There's a lot of competition. So that's all coming up. Don't forget, everything we talk about, every picture, every sculpture, every piece of hopeless restoration, it's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. So that's all there if you need it. First, though, we're dipping our toe into the gigantic world of sculpture, and we're not doing it on our own. The Interview. Bendy, so in, in a minute I'm going to be talking to the great Anthony Gormley, Sir Anthony Gormley, Mr. Angel of the North. He's got a new book out and a TV series that went with it, all about sculpture. Now, you're more of a painting man, aren't you? I mean, does sculpture generally, does it, does it ring your bell, Bendy? Only very occasionally. And there's a story that the art historian Giorgio Vasari tells about a competition Giorgione had with a bunch of sculptors. Did you know this one? And they had a sort of face off as who, who could best represent the human figure in painting or... Is this um, this in... par paragone thing that was, that was all the rage in the Renaissance, a sort of battle between painting and sculpture? Uh, it is indeed. So it's probably been an apocryphal story, but uh, Vasari always tells a good yarn, and he, he tells a good tale about how 
Giorgio only managed to beat the sculptors at their own game by, by tricking them with a very clever painting that uh, reproduced all sides of a human figure uh, using reflections and all sorts of tricks like that. So, so I'm, I'm more of a painting person, but um, I have to say I've never yet seen a work by Anthony Gormley that I did not like. I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan. Well, lucky you then. You've got plenty to look forward to, haven't you? Plenty to enjoy, because that's right. I'm going to be talking to Anthony Gorman, and it's coming up right now. So uh, what we should know is that Anthony has written a book with the art critic Martin Gayford, excellent art critic. Uh, it's been a labour of love. I think it's taken a, a few years now. So um, I went to meet him, and I asked him what it was about. Anthony, very nice to talk to you. Now, you've just produced this big book about sculpture, and I opened it expecting to find lots and lots of sculpture, and I did find that, but also lots of other things that perhaps I wouldn't have defined as sculpture. Um, what were your ambitions for the book? I think it was literally the result of a conversation. Martin and I first met about 18 years ago, maybe more like 19 now, in Santiago de Compostela. I had a show there at this wonderful... Alvarez Caesar Museum. And, uh, you know, he'd been doing these books with Hockney about pictures, and he decided that he'd like to do one about things rather than pictures. And uh, that was the beginning. He just, he sent me an email, said, would I be interested? And I said, yeah. And over about two years, he came to the studio and we just chatted. And I guess I wanted to put sculpture in a wider context than simply, as it were, this Eurocentric, kind of Renaissance-inspired idea about statuary, which is a, a very small part, I think, of that bigger story of material culture generally, the history of our species and how it has, in a sense, made things into a world out of an inherited earth. And it's a big story. You know, I, I did um, Arc and Anth at Cambridge before I went to art school. So that archaeology and anthropology, that is. Yeah. yeah. And that's always been a love of mine. And I suppose that came out, in our conversations, that came out. And it meant that we had to look at some of the earliest objects pre-Sapiens um, that were an example of shaping and... The extraordinary thing is, you know, back in Olduvai, the leaky kind of excavations not only showed us Australopithecus, but also the first tools of a hominin. So these choppers and really basic hand axes. But at the same time, the same species of pre-human made these bolli, round objects that evidently have little real tool function but seem to suggest an appreciation of, of shape for its own sake and the way that they sit in the hand is they're very beautiful things they're, they're, they're no more than three inches in in diameter they're made of calcite they're white and they kind of reflect light and in a maybe over romantic and poetic way i see this as the first step in a way of trying to make a humanly made thing that is equivalent to the largest found object in our spatial context, the moon at night. And I love this idea that, you know, before speech, we are making things that in some way reflect our relationship with matter and 
in a way that that lies beyond our palpable tactile experience. Anthony, when I hear you talk, I often think that you sound almost like a spiritual leader. Um, how can I put it? That there's a, an underpinning, a cosmic ambition of religion to the way you look at the world with these references to bigger forces and things. Is that right? Are you, are you a pretty sort of spiritual kind of guy? I don't know. I, I think that for me, sculpture is a still silent thing that somehow invites us to become aware of our own mortality, our own vulnerability, our own, in a sense, smallness in the face of other timescales and uh, the kind of the bigger cycles of the cosmos. And I guess, you know, I think that we live in a, a strange time in which art has been studied to death. Um, it has been institutionalized and commodified to the point where it's lost its ability to be in a way an anchor and a marker in the way that a standing stone is an anchor and a marker and i guess i because sculpture is not a picture but it is a thing in the world that invites us to reorientate our relationship with the world with the material reality around us yeah that we we've lost somehow its ability to make us sense our own being more fully through its existence. And, and that's why I'm so keen on, you know, making work that sits on a mountaintop or mm. on the beach or on the street, but doesn't need any of the framing of the cultural frames, whether those are, you know, your job, critical assessment, or the job of a museum to give it a label and a date and a, and a context that actually I think all good art is about life and hopefully helps you feel more alive when you engage with it. And I guess that's my ambition. I, you know, I wouldn't claim great spiritual profundity in the work. I simply wish to use the inherent qualities of sculpture, which essentially is often made in materials that act in time differently to our biological bodies and can, as a result, act as a foil for us to sense being more effectively. And the sculptures that I've been most moved by, you know, whether it's Hoa Hakananai, you know, the, the Maui uh, from Rapa Nui in, in the British Museum, or, you know, the Sleeping Buddha of Polonarua uh, in Sri Lanka, they ground you and set you free in equal measure. That these are humanly made things that find their place within nature, within the biosphere, within geology almost, and invite you to relocate yourself as a result. In the end, we aren't so different from our Paleolithic ancestors, and we still need to ground ourselves. Talking of grounding yourself, so your most famous work is obviously the angel in the north right which has appeared on television programs it's a football favorite it's it's become probably the best known public sculpture in britain right how did you want people to react to that and how have they reacted to it i don't know you know it's an interesting thought after just what we've been talking about in terms of sculpture's ability to ground you know i 
I, I thought of it from the beginning. This has to be, in a way, a transitional object for a time between the end of the industrial age and the arising of the information age. In some senses, it has to make a link with, I think, the pre-modern times of totemic collective expression. But how do you do that in an industrialized landscape that is famous for its coal mines, for its iron casting, for its engineering? And I think for me, it was an incredible privilege to go up there to work with the community, to learn in a way through its inherited making ability uh, about the language of ships, the use of ship plate, how you make a compound curve out of half an inch thick of ship steel, how the ribs of a ship work in relation to the dynamic of a hull, and put all of that knowledge into an object that had no, as it were, functional utility value, but was an imaginative object. You know, I mean, I'm saying this all afterwards. It was an adventure. I made this little model. We put it in the back of a Luton van. We drove it all around. What was left of the shipbuilding? You know, Swan Hunters was closing. All of the shipyards on the time were closing. It was a time where 300 years of incredible intelligence about making naval and, you know, standard trading ships was disappearing. And we had to find those people, and they were all now working for the oil industry making kind of allied engineering uh, structures for the North Sea and get them interested and say, yes, we can do this thing. We can do this thing that is an evocation of a very proud and long history of making as a celebration of that, but also as a statement of our faith in our own future. You know, they've been told by Maggie Thatcher that they were irrelevant in a late liberal capitalist economy, that they couldn't compete with Malaysia, with China. You know, this was the end of the coal mining and actually the, the collective amnesia of the re-landscaping of all of those powerful expressions that were as powerful as Stonehenge about the industrial age, the winding stations, the cooling towers, the pit head baths. They were all demolished and wiped, literally rubbed from our landscape. So the reason I did it was there was this tumulus. It was like Wayland Smithy. It was like one of the late Bronze Age or early Iron Age tumuli. But this was the tumulus made over the top of the St. Anne Colliery, three levels of coal seam below it. The remains of the pit head baths that had been made into this mound. And I went there and I said, I want to make this thing that in some senses, you know, resists the amnesia that was caused by that particular moment of the Tory government. And it was really moving. I, I, I can remember now walking up that mound and uh, Pat Connerty was one of the councillors to sit up. Well, Mr. Gormley, what we need is uh, one of your angels. And I didn't even know that they knew that I'd made a lead angel, which was sort of ironic kind of tribute to my own. I grew up a Catholic and I had a guardian angel who I was very reliant upon. And I'd sort of tried to yeah, bring that rather... Um, so it's a guardian angel of, of, of the Geordies, as it were. Yeah. So anyway, and I just said to him, yeah, well, if you want one of those, in order to actually work in the scale of this landscape, it's going to have to be at least three double-decker buses high. 
and they didn't seem to have any trouble with that. And then the rest is history. I mean, you know, they, they all hated it as an idea, but then the minute it was there, they came to know it and love it. I mean, that's an, you know, it's a very weird thing. There had never been a human, as it were, effigy of that scale in these islands. And, you know, it could have been a disaster. Um, <laughs> it's not a very well-designed aeronautical angel. You could say that it's a crucifixion. Um, I guess there's a question mark built into the angel. What is our relationship with technology? And all of those things that allow us to behave in ways that would formerly been attributed to, to gods. I mean, I think it's still a question mark. But the angel is still a question mark. It's again, it's a marker in time and space. It's a marker of a particular period of transformation within our culture. But at the same time, for the locals, it welcomes them home when they come back up north. Bendy, there you are. I mean, he's he's a bright man, isn't he? And he talks, I think he talks really eloquently, and not just about sculpture, but about, you know, the, the spiritual meaning of things and, and all that. Um, I did enjoy talking to him, and the book's terrific, I think. What about you? I love the way you described him as a, as a sage. He's almost a prophet-like figure, isn't he? And he, he's someone who talks so eloquently and yet accessibly about his art. He, he really underlines why someone like me could never really be an artist, because uh, I can never think that, that deeply and uh, spiritually about uh, the, the craft of making things. I, I love listening to him. As I said, I'm a great fan of all his work. But, but what I really liked is, is how he was prepared to accept the occasional sort of prosaic nature of his art. And I particularly love the story about how the Angel of the North came about. Uh, you can imagine in, in decades hence, art historians um, writing tens of thousands of words as to, to what Gormley was uh, trying to achieve when he selected that design for that place at that scale. When really what happened, uh, a, a local councillor said, yeah, what we want is one of your angels. And he said, <laughs> okay, you can have one, but it'll have to be huge. And the councillor went, Okay, and then they did it. <laughs> yeah, I, li I liked Anthony's attempt at a Geordie accent. I thought he sounded excellently Welsh um, <laughs> uh, when he did that. But um, I didn't. Do you know? I, I've I've written about the Angel of the North and and whatever. I never realised that it was built exactly on top of one of those slag heaps and the top of a mine, and that it was built so specifically in that industrial location. So when he started to talk about tumuli and these great Stone Age relics that we have dotted about Britain and how this was part of that story. It did make a lot more sense um, suddenly, this sort of location of it in that place, because it is basically like a giant standing stone on top of a tumuli, isn't it? I mean, that's its overall blurry effect. And the sense of him looking for these, well, I'm going to sound like him a bit now, but looking for these ancient powers, you know, yeah. these forces that run through the land, ley lines and all that, it's true, isn't it? I mean, he does get it in his work. I mean, I personally don't think the Angel of the North is, is anything like his best work. But if you go and see some of his other pieces, such as the ones near Liverpool, where you've got all the figures coming out of the sea, mm. and there's just basically a hundred or something little little iron men coming out of the water, um, like rocks, then you really get this wonderful sense of land art, of, mm. of, um, of a place being transformed by little bits of sculpture. And, and the thing is, they look, as it were, or feel enough like bits of rock sticking up to feel natural and okay, and not as if someone's come in and plonked this terrible piece of modern art and inflicted it on the modern world. They sit quite happily in the landscape, 
Uh, and, I, and I think that's probably just about true of, of the engine of the North as well. Um, and yet they do have this feeling of ancientness about them. as it, you, you can see them sort of having been there for an awfully long time. Mm. And I do, that's probably what I got most talking to him about it there, the, the sense that, you know, we are what we were, that, that sculpture within us, those feelings for sculpture, really kind of ancient and deeply rooted and absolutely at our core. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes. And I enjoyed listening to him talk about the importance of taking viewers of sculptures like this out of the museum context, mm. uh, coming away from the label, because so often, especially with contemporary art, we, we feel like we ought to look at the label before we decide whether we think it's a work or is important or not, or by someone we, we ought to admire. For Gormley, that sense of place is so important, isn't it? Uh, he was talking about the, the, the need to sometimes put things on top of a mountain. For a lot of contemporary sculpture, I think they use the, the energy and the context of, say, a museum setting. I mean, how often have we seen uh, works of contemporary sculpture in a beautiful sort of uh, 18th century palazzo, and there's a little a round metal pot on the floor or something, and the, the context of the beautiful space makes the sculpture work well for for gormley that's never the sense is it? it's it's the other way around even even his his enormous works that have that have say filled the room in the royal academy it's always about the work itself rather than the context and what i so like about gormley's work is he he uses scale and the eccentricity of the composition to to sort of shock the viewer out of uh, the normal way in which we see and appreciate sculpture. So um, they're, they're often sort of it's full frontal sculpture. It's it's sort of in your face, and yet at the same time it does have a sort of a subtlety and an even a, a delicacy about it. And I was trying to work out what that is. I, I think it's he always uses a very a subtle sense of of color, doesn't he? I mean. There's a naturalness about it, which which allows it to blend into the landscape. So you you it's a it's a world away from those huge sort of vulgar, colourful creations of someone like Jeff Koons, and and that's why I think a, a Gormley statue on the beach or on top of a mountain will stand the test of time. It'll be there for centuries, and and I think that's wonderful to imagine. Hmm. Well, obviously, it's important for him to to create things that have a relationship with their environment. And I mean, did you see that? I can't remember what it was called, but he did a whole series of blokes as it were scattered on the skyline of london i mean there was one at the hayward gallery it was at the time of his hayward gallery show mm. so you you walked around london you looked up and, and you would see someone on the roof line and you know there were all those ideas about are they committing suicide or yeah. what or they, they were never totally intrusive but they they changed the space because yes. once you've seen somebody on a rooftop like that First of all, you're sort of looking at the rooftop more closely, but also the space you're in becomes charged with a different kind of energy. You know, it, it, mm. you can't help but think, oh, my God, I hope they don't jump off or whatever. That, I think, is something he's very, very effective at. And it's um, we haven't got it in the interview, but, but when I was talking to him um, afterwards, we were talking about this thing called land art, which is this thing that happened in, in America in the 1970s, where American artists would go out into the land and do something in this amazing American landscape. And a particular hero of Gormley's, and indeed of mine, is um, this artist Robert Smithson, who built this thing, famous thing, you know, it was a giant spiral mm, um, yeah. That, that, yeah, that, that went out into the Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I've done that journey. I, I've, I've driven to see that. I've, I've, I've been to see the Robert Smithson spiral. Um, and I've been to see other bits of land art. And it's, you know, when you drive across vast bits of land and you actually make a journey and you go somewhere and the landscape plays a part in the pleasure and the excitement, and then the art does as well. 
I mean, it's a genuinely thrilling experience, and I can't recommend highly enough um, a sort of trip across America looking at American land art of the 70s. It's a brilliant thing to do. And going around Britain looking for Anthony Gormley's is a, is a great thing to do too, for the same sort mm -hmm. of reason. And we haven't got a landscape that can match um, uh, you know, the American Wild West, but we have got interesting places, and, and in a lot of them, there are Gormley's popping up. So, yeah, he's his... I think he's fulfilling his ambition, which is almost to sort of match the um, Neolithic world in, in leaving behind things that people can encounter and which fill them with a, a sense of wonder about what the hell's going on in the universe. Well, another itinerary for us to plan when we get uh, when we fire up the camper van when when the uh, the lockdowns are over. Waldy? Bendy, I can't wait to take you to Utah um, <laughs> and to drive down to Nevada on the American Land Art Trail. I swear to you, let's take the kids. I'll take your kids as well. It is one of the great journeys you can make. Anybody listening to this podcast, do it whenever you get the chance, as soon as the COVID world uh, stops. Anyway, that's sculpture done. Uh, time to move on. Um, Anthony's book, by the way, is called Shaping the World, and it's published by Thames and Hudson. There's more about it on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. Time now, though, to buckle up and put on a helmet, because we're heading somewhere very dark and very dangerous. The Wardy and Oh, yes, it's the Wardy and Bendy Awards. The world called and we heard. Bendy, now on Twitter, on my timeline, there's been this argument raging for a while now about the worst film ever made about an artist. For some reason, films about artists are always bad. It's like it's written in stone in the annals of Hollywood. Films about artists have to be awful. So um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the leading contenders uh, for this prestigious award uh, before handing out the Wendy for the very worst one at the end of the journey. And this week, we've been looking at Frida, which is a film about the life of the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. It stars Salma Hayek as Frida, with Alfred Molina as her hefty husband, Diego Rivera. There's a host of other famous actors popping up as well all over the film. Bendy, what did you think of it? I was really, really, really wanting to like it, Wally, because I thought that you wouldn't. And uh, for reasons of balance, I thought that I should, you know, defend this film. I like Frida Kahlo. I mean, what a great story and great art. Alas, this film, I, I couldn't make it work, Waldi. Um, my, my wife, Ishbal, now she's a, a TV director and producer, and she's normally very charitable towards um, the efforts of her fellow filmmakers. Uh, she lasted about half an hour on this one. Um, now, because I knew I'd be talking about it with you, I, I watched the whole thing diligently, um, talk about suffering for your art, but uh, perhaps I should let you go first because you 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 might um, have something more profound to say than I do, which is it's just not very good. Well, you know, the thing is, right, Frida is. I mean, I've had lots of people in touch with me, mostly on Twitter, to say how much they liked it, right? And what a great film it was. And I haven't seen it until recently. And what can I say? I mean, what happened basically was that I turned it on, and pretty much. Within about a couple of minutes, I started giggling. And then I continued to giggle. And then there were more and more reasons to giggle. And before I knew it, you know, it was an hour and a half later, and I've been laughing like a drain for most of an hour. Because it, it commits that sin which I mean, most films about artists commit, but it committed it perhaps more frequently than, than most films. And that is, it was just ridiculous. 
you know, the whole thing was was ridiculous, preposterous. From the moment you see Salma Hayek, um, very beginning of the film, she's a, a young girl of I don't know, fourteen or fifteen, running around the Ministry of Education in Mexico City, where she looks thirty. You know, why didn't they get some young kid in to do it if they're going to have her? Um, but she's, and, so then that's the moment where she's, for some reason, she's shagging in a cupboard with a fellow school. <laughs> I mean, it's well, just it, the, the shagging is is slightly a side story because i mean after the film was made i mean long after when the the stuff happened with harvey weinstein there was um a lot of revelations about it and, and selma hayek went on a blog and, and, and revealed that she'd been harassed by by weinstein and that basically he had insisted on a lot more sex scenes in the film mm. than she wanted to put in now um how many were there originally how many he insisted on we don't know but i, I think we can just assume that there was this presence of, of harvey weinstein insisting on selma hayek getting her kit off as much as possible and, and boy does she do it right but, you know, I mean, you know, this film, it, I think it got, it got nominated for something like six Oscars, six Academy Awards, uh, but only one, two of them. One, one of them was, I know, for, for makeup, right? And let's talk a little bit about Samuel Hayek's monobrow. Okay, I mean, everybody knows that Frida Kahlo would show herself as she was. So she had this famous monobrow, you know, which was very sort of unfeminine in contemporary terms, although it was her identifier. So um, Selma Hayek has given herself this monobrow. I don't know if it's a real monobrow or a pasted-on monobrow, but it's, it's, it's sort of good in the middle. But then at the ends of the, the monobrow, it becomes carefully plucked. I don't know if you noticed. So the ends of the eyebrows are sort of delicately done, but the middle is this shaggy monobrow. And the other thing about Frida Kahlo is that she had a moustache, right? She, when she painted all the pictures of herself, she put a moustache in, but that was like a step too far, I think, for, for poor Salma. So she doesn't have the moustache. She just has this rather ridiculous monobrow. So physically, as it were, you know, an art is all about what you see, right? So what you see immediately is this person getting it slightly wrong in their look when it comes to being like Frida Kahlo. So that had me in giggles and stitches all the way through. Um, but, uh, but And also the accents. I mean, this is a, a film about a Mexican artist, but it's done in English, except that it's called Mexican English. So they're speaking, as it were, in an English accent with a, with a Mexican tone to it. And all these English actors who appear in it, I mean, there's Trotsky pops up later doing, and that's Jeffrey Rush, the famous Jeffrey Rush. He does a, a Russian accent, although he's English. And then poor old Alfred Molina, who's English and plays Diego Rivera. And I, I think it's probably the best thing in the film, to be honest. Mm. Um, Alfred Molina, who's English, has to do a cod English-Mexican accent. And yet when they all start singing, which happens every now and then, they all sing in Mexican. It's baffling, isn't it, Bendy? But Alfred Molina, what do you think of him? Oh, no, I'm a fan. He's, he's definitely the best thing in it. Although, you know, Selma Hayek does her best, and um, I can't not give this film A for effort, because it, it was one of these, uh, they, they call them passion projects, don't they? Selma Hayek had been uh, trying to do this film for a long time. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the stuff about Harvey Weinstein, because one of the, the, the scenes that he insisted in, which I discovered after watching it, I wish I'd known it before I watched it, because I think I would have been slightly more understanding. One of the scenes he insists on is that bizarre moment when suddenly... Uh, Frida and a female singer have to have uh, full frontal nude lesbian sex and it kind of yeah. 
it sits in the That's middle Josephine of the Josephine Baker, the famous Josephine Baker, who was in Paris in the 1930s. Oh. That's right. She has a, a sex scene with Josephine Baker. Totally ludicrous. I, I didn't catch the name. I, I was a bit distracted. But it, but but another thing that Harvey Weinstein insists on is rewriting the script at the last moment. And the dialogue in the film is occasionally extremely clunky. You're right to mention the accents. It's a sort of Taco Bell vision of Mexico, <laughs> isn't it? Um, it, it's not authentic, which is odd since um, Salma Hayek is, is herself Mexican. And the, the film stumbles from misstep to misstep. Uh, one of the worst is, is Jeffrey Rush, his uh, Russian accent is terrible. But for me, this film's most cardinal sin is something which nearly all films about art uh, do, and that is they don't show the actual art. There's lots of reproductions of Frida Kahlo's work, which are painted by some jobbing copyist. Look like they've ordered on the internet. You know, you can order those kind of reproductions of famous artworks. Um, I don't understand that. Why? Why not just you know CGI or drop in reproductions of the real thing? Art films always go wrong in this. They show you somebody's hand drawing or painting something, and the thing they're painting or drawing is always wrong. I mean, there, there's one moment in this where um, she's painting a face or drawing a face, and it's very realistic, academic type of face, completely different from anything Frida Kahlo would have drawn. Um, and yet there is um, Salma Hayek scrubbing away with one of her hands, very unconvincingly. I mean, that is it. In the end, isn't that what it's all about? That these are meant to be films about art or artists. And yet in their effort to just make them always about the sort of sex lives and the, yes. the tumult of their existence and all that kind of stuff, these films never, never show the art properly and never give the art a chance. It's like making a superhero movie where you never actually show the superhero saving the world or anything like that. You just focus on their home life, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it it's, it's a kind of pointless experience. And the thing yes. is, that, see, if you, have, you, have you been to Mexico City? Have, have you seen... I have not. Oh, Bendor, I could talk for hours about this, right? I mean, I have. I, the Guardian sent me, when I was the art critic of The Guardian... It sent me to Mexico City after the big earthquake in uh, 1985, was it? And I did the whole trail. I did all the, the the murals, the frescoes, Diego Rivera, the Ministry of Education, which is where the film starts, Frida, and these, these several scenes set there. I mean, this Mexican mural art is so wonderful. Mm. It's just so exciting. Yeah. And it is there in the background, because there's quite a lot of scenes set in the Ministry of Education. Diego Rivera's painting, in the scene at the beginning where he's painting, and she yeah. comes in and says, you must see my work. And he says, OK, come up and show me. And she says, no, you come down here. Yes, and then come she shows him a terrible reproduction of, of what her lovely early self-portrait in a velvet dress. And, and that's, supposed to be, that's supposed to be the defining moment where Diego Rivera says, my God, this person can paint. And we as viewers are all looking at this terrible reproduction and thinking, no, she can't. What are you doing? <laughs> that's right. But that scene was set in the Ministry of Education, right? So if, if, if you look around there, you have got some of the greatest art of the 20th century, in my opinion, by, you know, Rivera's great fresco cycle for the Ministry of Education. I suppose the reason they can't show it is because it looks a bit old. And since he's just meant to be painting it at the time, as it were, you yeah. can't really show this, this more mature, worn fresco from, you know, a century yeah. later. And there's several yeah. other scenes, like, you know, where he's bonking, I mean, he's always bonking his models. That's, that's the thing that they do, you know, they, they keep saying Rivera's bonking his model. But there's one where he's, he's bonking his model um, in the, in the big, chapel in in chapinga there's a sort of nude woman on on the on the roof i mean that's a brilliant place you know it, it, you just sort of hope they'd spend a minute just looking at it and enjoying it because it is really there but no they rush off and find the first cupboard to, in which to film Salma hayek you know bonking someone <laughs> 
Well, I think I, I, th I was looking into the, the production of the movie and its reception, and I think I put my finger on why the film goes wrong in terms of capturing Frida Kahlo and her art. And I think it, it, it identifies why so many films about art go wrong. Um, the American Film Institute decided to select Frida as one of their movies of the year in 2002. And the line they came out with to describe why they've done this uh, goes as follows. Frida is a movie about art that is a work of art in itself. Now that's not very contentious, but here we go. The film's unique visual language takes us into an artist's head and reminds us that art is best enjoyed when it moves, breathes, and is painted on a giant canvas as only the movies can provide. So isn't that extraordinary? Because that's basically the movie world saying, step aside artists, you can't do it as well as we can. And I think that's why so many films about art get it wrong. It's, it's founded on a kind of arrogance that filmmaking is better than, say, painting and sculpture. Mm. So why has it done so well, then, this film? It made money. Um, as I said, it was nominated for, I think, six, six Oscars. People on my timeline keep telling me it's a really good film. Well, what are we missing here, Bendy? Well, we're two old reactionary stick-in-the-muds with no taste. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's, it's probably all on us. But... I, I should just say, I, I didn't want to give up on Frida and the movies, and I did a little bit of Googling. And have you come across this film made in Mexico in the 1980s called Frida Still Life, or in Spanish, Frida Naturaleza Viva? Now, apologies for my terrible uh, pronunciation. Uh, made in 1983 and directed by Paul Leduc. Have you seen that? No, no, no. Well, this is worth seeing for Frida Kahlo aficionados. You can stream it online. You have to pay a few quid, but it, it's there. Um, now, when it came up, uh, it's obviously it's made in Mexico, so it's, it's in Spanish, and there are no subtitles. I, I paid to, to stream it. I thought, oh, my God, I, I can't get the subtitles. I won't understand what's going on. But there's no dialogue at all. I needn't have worried. And, and even without any dialogue, it's still better than, than Frida, the modern movie. Um, so it's, it's a rather surreal film, but um, it does show... Uh, the tragedies and, and the power of her story quite effectively and most importantly it shows her actual art so you see lots and lots of of her paintings which are all there as the plot unfolds and the story is told through the paintings so hmm. it, it can be done i like the idea of, of of a film like that with no dialogue in it yeah mind you you would miss out on these great sort of exchanges that you get in frida like the ones between her and uh alfred mina do, do you remember the scene where they go to a market and he holds up um a pair of melons that he's about to buy and she says to him i always wanted a man with melons bigger than mine <laughs> and he says back to her you know what i always wanted a girl with cojones basically if you had your silent film you'd have missed out on that bendy it wouldn't have been there um anyway uh, let's move on there's plenty more Films about artists to come in the weeks ahead as we look through some of the uh, the best and the worst films about art ever made and hand out, uh, eventually, I hope, the Waldian Bendy Award for the very worst one of all. So stay tuned, folks. There's a lot of terrible stuff on the way. Can I interject? Uh, I'm not sure we can subject our poor listeners to too many terrible films and us warbling on about how awful they are. So can we pick a, a better one for next week? Can we go for The Agony and the Ecstasy, which which has Charlton Heston being Michelangelo. How could you possibly go wrong with that? Should we, should we do that next week and invite listeners to, to tell us what they think about the film? 
So it's Agony in the Ecstasy next week. Okay, well, listen, um, these are the Waldy and Bendy Awards for the worst film about art ever made, in brackets, and also some good ones, end of brackets. Well, we're still going to end up with a winner or a loser, <laughs> I hope, somewhere along the line. You know, that's complicated, Bendy. What isn't complicated is what's coming next. Because what's coming next is the bit of this podcast that you and I get the most pleasure from. On the Wall. Ah, oh, what a relief. Um, on the wall, Bendy. Time to get away from what Hollywood tells us is great art to what Bendy tells us is great art, or at least interesting art. What have you got for us this week on On the Wall? Well, this week I have chosen a painting by Botticelli. It is a beautiful portrait of a young man holding a roundel, which is a, a portrait of, a, of an old saint. And uh, it's one of Botticelli's finest portraits, and I love the way that it is so three-dimensional. The sitter is, who unfortunately we don't know who it's of, but the sitter is presented in a, in a stone frame, which is that wonderful uh, light gray stone that you see so often in Florence. It's called Pietra Serena. You know, when you go into a, a Renaissance church in Florence and there's lovely, those lovely harmonious color tones of the, of the gray stone and the white whitewashed walls. So, so we see that in this painting and he's, he's leaning out of the frame, his fingers just come out of the frame and he's holding this this roundel of a saint of a bearded saint and it's it's just so cleverly done the botticelli he never puts a foot wrong does he anyway i've chosen this picture because it, it it's actually i love botticelli and i was lucky enough actually to discover a work by his some time ago for the bbc series i make called britain's lost masterpieces um uh, forgive the plug because the new series is just about to start Anyway, I've chosen Botticelli because uh, this painting is in fact coming up for sale next week at Sotheby's uh, New York Old Master Sale. And the estimate, Wildy, can you believe it, is an astonishing up to $80 million. $80 um, million. And I, and I suspect you might be bidding for this picture. So I'm, I'm choosing it for my on the wall to have this week uh, before uh, you put your hand up and, and bag this wonderful painting. Um, the, one of the reasons it works so well uh, is it's in, it's in lovely condition. And that's astonishing for a portrait that was painted probably in about 1480, 1490s. And uh, Botticelli, of course, at this point in the Renaissance, he's, he's painting in tempera. Uh, he was also occasionally beginning to mix his tempera, which is which is basically a color pigment mixed with egg. He was beginning to mix that with oil, which of course was a, a technique that comes down from from the north, an artist like Jan van Eyck. And so with Botticelli, you get these wonderful translucent flesh tones, and that's why uh, the nose and the mouth and the chin in this this portrait uh, seem to project themselves from the panel out towards us and it's it's just so ravishingly done and it's a very it's a very interesting format of painting this because you'll see that uh, the roundel portrait the the fellow is holding uh, and presenting towards us is actually a painting from from even earlier it's painting from about the the, the 1400s um which which botticelli has kind of obviously <laughs> cut out from some other work we don't know who painted the roundel he's cut out from another work and inserted it within his own portrait. And this was an earlier Renaissance conceit where sometimes in religious pictures, a beautiful angel uh, would be holding another portrait, an icon within the painting. Um, only the modern twist that Botticelli puts on here is that the, the beautiful angel is in fact just a, a beautiful sitter. Um, and as I say, an unidentified young man. So, so this is a painting which I would like to have for, for a few days before some lucky owner snaps it up next week for an enormous price. What do you think it'll make? 
It's gorgeous. What did it make? Well, I don't know. I'm like, I thought you were going to bid for it. I was going to say, wow, wow, Bendy, you've got this on this. You're obviously going to buy it. Um, I think it will make um, $120 million or something like that. I mean, is it the last important Botticelli in private hands? It must be it must be one of them, wasn't it? The, um, yes, the, the, the auction houses, they're always clever at coming up with some USP like that. You'll probably find it isn't the last one in, in private hands, but it is one of very few mm -hmm. that you could, you could buy if you're a Botticelli fan. It's exquisite, um, there's no doubt about that. It reminded me a little bit of, the, there's a, a Botticelli in the Uffizi, is it, um, is it one of the Medici holding a roundel as well? But yes, that's got yes, a, yes. a portrait of him on it. What a fascinating idea. I mean, so, so you've got this beautiful painting of the young man, uh, anonymous young man, standing, or rather sitting probably in a, in a kind of window framing with this stone surround, sort of leaning on a balcony sort of feeling. And yet he's holding up this roundel, this strangely interjected sort of image from the past, um, a kind of medallion, isn't it? Except that it's actually a real painting from the 14th century. Mm, now, for the price of one. Yeah, I had a good look at it. In when you sent me the information you wanted to talk about it, I, I had a good look at the roundel. The, the great thing about the Sotheby's site is that you can actually really zoom in on it, can't you? Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a saint, isn't it? Obviously, it's some bearded old saint. N nobody has said who he is. Or indeed, I haven't read anything that says specifically why he's there, for that matter. You know, why is he there? I, first, I looked at two things. One is his hand. Have you seen the little saint, the little roundel? He's holding up his hand. And in his hand, he's doing that wonderful Byzantine gesture, which you see in a lot of um, Byzantine churches. Uh, usually, you see Jesus Christ holding up his hand like that. And he's got his fingers bent over. Can you see? There's two fingers oh, bent over, uh, touching the thumb, one yes. finger going up. Yeah. So what that is, he's spelling out the name Jesus Christ in Greek. So it's oh. uh, the index finger is an I, J, mm -hmm. and then the middle finger forms a C, uh, the ring finger forms a C, and then the way it crosses the thumb is an X. So it's oh. um, JCXC, which is Jesus Christus, first and last letters of Jesus Christus in Greek. I mean, I know about this because I did a, a film about Byzantine art, but fascinating. But you see, I reckon, this is obviously nothing more than a theory, but I reckon that the identity of the sitter must be referred to by the roundel. In other words, let's say, for example, it's St. Benedict of Siena, this little figure in the roundel. I don't, I don't know who it is. It's a saint, but it might be him. Then I reckon the sitter's name is Benedict or Benedito or something like that. And so mm -hmm. the, the roundel it refers to him. It has to. There's no other reason to be holding it like that. So uh, someone doing some work on this in the future, I'm sure they can they can find that out and we can get some sense of uh, who the bloke is. But yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. When you have it up on your on the wall, can I come up to Scotland and look at it as well with you? Because uh, it is it is um, I mean it's just delicious, isn't it? It's a lovely thing. You can indeed, and and, and that's an intriguing information about the the um, the saint. You you may well be right. So we've got a few days to crack the sitter and add to the value of this picture even more. Indeed, and um, what fun that'll be. Now, I've gone for, it's not so much on the wall as on the shelf. I wanted, because I'm, I'm feeling a bit bleak, to be honest, Ben, it wasn't just watching Frida. Um, it's, it's, it's closing in on me a bit, this, this latest lockdown. So I've been feeling a bit sad. And I thought, I want something that will really fill me with joy and remind me of the explosive pleasures that art can sometimes offer. So I've gone for a Fatimid, rock crystal ewer um which belongs to the vna you may remember i did a series with sean greenhouse um, a couple of years ago 
where he recreated various things uh, in the style of the original manufacturers or original makers. And he did a, a little Fatimid bottle, rock crystal bottle for us in the Islamic style. What he could never have done is one of these Fatimid ewers because these are considered to be perhaps the most exquisite and difficult Islamic artworks of all. You know, the, this, mm -hmm. these are the Mona Lisas of, um, of Islamic craftsmanship. And there's, I think there are six, six of them left in the world. They were all made in Cairo uh, in about the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries for the court of the Fatimids. And they're all carved out of a single piece of rock crystal. So you've got a, a jug, you know, that's about a foot tall or eight, nine inches tall with a handle carved out of a single piece of rock crystal. So it's totally perfectly see-through. Um, it's clear as water, as it were. And somehow they've cut this shape out of a piece of rock crystal channeled out the whole interior of it to little more than the thickness of a piece of glass they carved into this interior these gorgeous shapes as a sort of foliage and plants and animal life they've carved a handle somehow god knows how out of it. it's not stuck on it's carved out of it and they've done all this with a, a degree of exquisite craftsmanship that is frankly beyond belief i mean you just don't know how they did it this would be impossible now i can't imagine what it would be like in the in the 10th century to come up with ways of cutting into the crystal like this so yeah I, I, I would like this you probably know that um in the quran there's a lot of descriptions of paradise and a lot of people want to go to paradise and when they get to paradise they'll be able to drink wine from crystal goblets because um crystal is thought to have been this magic material amongst its many properties is when you put wine in it you don't get drunk hey so you know that's good for a start um but also it's 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 pure and beautiful enough for, for paradise so my idea right is i'm going to get this rock crystal ewer from the vna this precious thing of which there are only six left in the world if, if this came up for sale this would go for 10 20 30 million i'm sure as well Easy, yeah. and i'm gonna fill it with just one time one time just one time with some red wine from um this place we we go to in france it's the chateau d'anglais in a, in a little domain called la clap and they do a mauvais which is a kind of red wine that's really sort of meaty and strong and i'm not really a red wine drinker but for this time i'm gonna have it i'm gonna pour it into this ewer and i'm gonna pour it into a crystal glass and i'm gonna drink it and enjoy it just the one time I wouldn't dream of doing anything more with this crystal you than using it just the one time. And then I'm going to give it back to the V&A. But I, just to make myself feel alive, to, to, to feel that I'm here for a purpose on this doomed earth of ours, I'm just going to do that one time. So that's my on-the-wall dream, my wish. The beautiful crystal you which I can look at and enjoy, and then this fantastic bit of wine um, just to buck me up a bit in life. What do you think of that? Lovely. Yeah, you can only do it once. It's definitely not going to be dishwasher safe. But I love <laughs> I love the word ewer uh, because it's a jug, isn't it? But when, when, when a jug is fancy, we call it a ewer. And, and I'm not really sure where that word comes from. But the, what an extraordinary object. You, the mind boggles as to how they made it. And I, I presume you probably know this from your work with Sean, but is, is it one of those skills that's now vanished? We couldn't do it even if we tried to recreate Well, well, well above all, what you couldn't get is a piece of rock crystal this big. Um, I mean, it has to be perfectly see-through, remember? So it has to be yeah. a perfect piece of rock crystal. Um, and there's been quite a lot of discussion where the Fatimids got it. I mean, back in the 10th century, 11th century. Uh, and the latest thinking on it is that it came from Madagascar. That there was um, one mountain in Madagascar that was filled with this perfect rock crystal. Uh, but that's obviously been mined to death now. So you couldn't get that. You could not get anybody to make this today. No. You know, it would take them. Well, Sean, I'm trying to remember what he said. I think he said it would take him 
something like 25 years to, to hollow it out and carve it oh. by hand, you know, because you've oh. got to use a, a bow drill. Yeah, and imagine all the ones where they got it wrong or a bit of a crack or a chink or when they dropped it. I mean, oh, lifetime to make something like this. Exactly, exactly. They'll see a preciousness of it. Anyway, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have that. I'm going to have a glass of wine. And I think that's it for the podcast, Bendy. I mean, you can't you can't get better than that, can you? Um, so, oh, it's been such fun talking to you. We've got some more terrible films in brackets and possibly some good ones coming up in the Waldy and Bendy's. Uh, but for me, it's goodbye. And for me, cheerio. Waldy and Bendy.